Hey everybody, welcome to Note Up number 103. I'm Rod Bag, and we have something special for you today. We're just trying to start a new little series that's one-on-one interviews with people from our community. So the idea is that we'd have a chat to people that have some history with Node or have something valuable to share that can help you level up your Node expertise and can give you a bit of cultural context about Node itself. And today, to start us off, we're joined with Brian LaRue. So say hello, Brian. Hi, we'll be here. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean. So let's get straight into it, figure out who this Brian fellow is. So Brian, tell us a bit about yourself. Where did you come from and how did you get into JavaScript? I don't know where the JavaScript thing started. It started a really long time ago for sure. I think I might have been introduced to it before Flash, but I'm pretty sure that the first type of ECMAScript thing I wrote was Flash. And that would have been a long time ago. Later, you know, and like JavaScript wasn't really like appropriate to use at that time, which would have been like late 90s, early 2000s. And then Google did Google Maps and all of a sudden we had permission to use it on the web. And JavaScript started to take off. I think it was like a little while after that that uh, I started to get, well, it's actually quite a while after that, but we started to get using it everywhere for everything. And I created a joke site with this guy, Andrew Lunning, called WTFJS. And that built a little bit of notoriety in the community for me, maybe not in a positive way, but it was meant to be funny because it's a language I love. Yeah, after that, I, I started working on the PhoneGap project in Cordova, and I've been hanging around this node scene since the beginning. So tell us a bit about the PhoneGap project then. Did, how early did you get involved in that project? Yeah, I was there right at the beginning. There's some origin story debate, as there always is with projects that get popular. Uh, and like a whole bunch of people worked on it. Nobody could take credit for it, although a lot of people wanna want to. It's one of those things that's like a huge, huge human effort. And I was at a consultancy where, you know, we we kicked up the project and you know, the first commits were definitely landed by Brock Witten and then Rob Ellis. On iOS, it was a very early moment when we didn't really know what we could get away with with Apple. The idea of PhoneGap is embedding a web view on mobile phones, for those who don't know. And then this dude, Joe Bowser, ported it over to Android. And our CTO at the time, Dave Johnson, ported it to BlackBerry. And then it randomly got ported around like Symbian and all these other places. And we, we had a, a runtime that let us build apps for the phones just as mobile was taking off, but using web tech, which we thought was an important idea but we weren't doing it as as like you know a product or a mission so much as a hack or a workaround or a polyfill. Uh, the original inception of that project was because we felt that the web was going to catch up and we needed a stopgap, hence the name PhoneGap. And the project grew from there. I think a big reason that PhoneGap got so popular was because we were mission driven, that we did believe in the web, and that we we didn't want to be your you know central solution for building native apps, we wanted to go away. We wanted to give you a path off of the proprietary train that we sadly are still on. Yeah, that's been a really mixed story, hasn't it, with flopping back and forth between web and native? You know, though, like, yeah, so kind of. And and we can definitely dig into this more. Yeah, I, I've since moved on from the PhoneGap project, although I'm still part of the Cordova project, and that's a whole other story, getting into foundations, which in, in the Node perspective is also fun. The native apps have, have been flatlining 
for about three years. There's roughly 100,000 new native apps a year right now, which isn't a, a bad number, and it's you know amazing, amazingly huge and important part of the ecosystem, especially depending on who you ask or what your use case is. But reality is people only use you know between one and 10 native apps. They don't download apps, and brands are, are pulling out of the app store fast because the app store is is not a great distribution channel for discovery. Whereas there's, so there's 100,000 new apps a year, but there's maybe going to be twice that today in new web pages, which, you know, is, is startling. So the rumors of the web's demise are uh, exaggerated at best, and the reach and importance of native applications on mobile is exaggerated also. But these things aren't, like, mutually exclusive either. I think it's, it's kind of silly when you pit them against each other. They're all important for different use cases. Yeah, and you can also start talking about things like the desktop use case, um, things like Electron, which is you know, like a phone gap for your desktop. There's obviously use cases for that. You're not going to build every application as a web page. Certain things like, I don't know, Photoshop, for example, definitely belong to the desktop, but can you, can you leverage web technology? Certainly. And so that's, that's kind of the story. I mean, these, these things aren't, aren't absolute, and I think it's a lot more convenient for people to have an absolute answer just build for iOS or just build a native app, but it turns out to be more nuanced. Yeah, I've been personally switching between the Android Twitter web versus Twitter app on my phone, and neither are particularly great. <laughs> I was going to say that Twitter web is getting a lot better, though. It, it is. It's just it's not as responsive. Like you know. Yeah. Everything's a bit sluggish, and perhaps that comes from being in Australia, where the response times are. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there's there's work to be done, and you're probably on a Nexus Android, uh, which is best of class, and so it's a it's a little bit easier uh, development path. But majority of Android phones are, you know, a lot worse off as far as what web view they may or may not have. It's it's, it's tough. Web development's hard, but that's why they that's why they pay us all the big bucks. And that's why I don't do much of it these days. <laughs> uh, so tell us a bit about the Adobe Cordova Foundation. Like, what, what happened there? I, I missed most of that history, so I don't have a whole lot of context. Tell yeah. us about that evolution. Yeah, it was, it, was, you know, it was weird, man. We were being acquired by a big company, and it was scary. And one thing that we knew for sure, the, so the creators of PhoneGap, the Nitobi team, we were being bought largely to continue our work on PhoneGap inside Adobe. And this is an older Adobe, and Adobe in 2011, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, Steve Jobs wrote this gnarly letter condemning Flash, and Adobe was not in a good place. And they bought Nitobe, and they bought Typekit, and they kicked off the Creative Cloud, and we were, we were being looked at to continue our work there. And we were into it, because having a company at scale is a lot of firepower, but we, we, you know, we weren't completely happy with where we were at or, or how we could be used more broadly. And so very specifically, PhoneGap had a CLA, a contributor license agreement, that named a lot of individuals and people and companies that were working on it that were happy to name Nitobi as a copyright holder. And we knew as soon as we swapped that over to the name Adobe, we would be in for some trouble. We had to move to a foundation. We didn't, we didn't have a choice. It would have been suicide for that project to try and continue and name Adobe as a 
place that you're going to sign all the rights to your code over to. And if you're a big company, you couldn't. And the big key to the health of an open source project, as you guys know, is contributorship. So we needed those committers, and we need committers from diverse places and companies to sponsor those committers because you need people working on, on software that are paid. And we didn't really know what we were doing. We, had a, we thought we knew what we were doing. We hadn't been working with IBM at that point for quite a while. And IBM is really a silent kind of quiet achiever in the open source world. They're so important to so many open source projects, and they never get any credit for this. So I want to give them credit now. They were a big catalyst for us to move in this direction and have a CLA and then to seek out a foundation. And we ended up working with Apache, who's close ties with IBM, so this is no surprise. And a little-known story at that time, PhoneGap was being litigated against because of the name. PhoneGap was really similar to the Gap, as in the clothing company. And Apache was like, cool, we want to take your code, we're super into this, but um, we don't want to inherit your, your lawsuit. <laughs> so, <laughs> understandably, we had to rename it something. And so we picked a really bad name. We called it Callback, which we thought was funny. As you know, callbacks, JavaScript, phones, whatever. And we that lasted maybe a day, and the community revolted over how confusing... As they do. Yeah, as they do. And, and rightfully so, our docs were going to be a nightmare. It'd be like Apache callback, pass a callback, you can just imagine. Wouldn't have made any sense. So we, we then rebranded as Cordova, which is the street that the Nitobi office was on in Vancouver. And so <laughs> was, was that like a desperate, what are we going to do? Look out the window, there's a street name, let's call it that. <laughs> it wasn't far off. Yeah, we needed to do something, we need to do something fast. And it, it's a good name, though. I, I like it. It's got a sort of its own callback to Vancouver and where things started, and it's, it's working. Yeah, and so that's how we got the name. And, that's, and so the, all the assets of Cordova, everything that is Cordova is effectively a, a snapshot of, of PhoneGap at 2012. And then we continued to iterate on it and do a branded downstream. And we had a lot of struggles integrating into a foundation, as, as open source projects do, that are community-driven and grassroots. And we eventually figured it out and got it working. And you know, now today, I, I think things are quite stable. So when... When Adobe acquired you, was that was that basically an acquire because they weren't actually buying the code? They were just buying the people to contribute to that? What was the why did Adobe end up doing that given that they yeah. couldn't own it? Yeah, I guess you could characterize it as an acquire. I don't know that the, the founders would appreciate that characterization or not, but the it was it was more perception than anything else. It was also expertise, but yeah, it was for the people. It was also for the code because they they were very interested in incorporating PhoneGap in the tooling and across uh, Adobe's organization, which ended up happening, but not in ways we expected. Yeah, I guess it would have been like an acquire. And interestingly, if it, as acquisitions go, I think it was a really successful one. Most of the team stayed, and you know the project thrives today with much of the original contributorship is very rare for a project that old. It started in 2008, so you know, eight years. So who's holding up the foundation these days? Is it IBM, oh. Adobe? It's uh, Adobe and Microsoft. IBM's still there. Adobe and Microsoft, Ubuntu's around. Oh my god, I'm going to miss people and it's going to make them mad. Intel, <laughs> Mozilla. The primary person from the Adobe side Shazran Dula, who has led PhoneGap iOS since 
very near the beginning, doing a lot of work on it for a long time. Has a huge amount of respect to the community. He's a rock star in a good sense. There's, I think, and I don't know if this number is still accurate, but it was, as I left, there was something like over 40 active committers still rocking them. That's, uh, that's very impressive. I, I know just my journey of getting involved in the whole foundation thing. I can definitely agree with your comments about IBM, just seeing them really propping up a lot of the open source ecosystem in the background. Yeah. Um, but, but just also knowing that these foundations can be a little bit of a struggle to keep going with the momentum. Some of them struggle to just stay relevant, to stay in people's minds, and to keep that membership, the, fa- the financial membership going as well. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, so Apache, and I, I can talk freely about a lot of this, and it's all very well documented online. We had a huge amount of issues with them early on around revision control. They wanted us to move to SVN, and we were like, no. And they, they had a very kind of traditional release policy based on the idea of shipping binaries on Maven, which is you know nothing like what you do in, in the mobile world. And we had a lot of sort of innovators, dilemma-style struggles. Apache is an organization. The heart's in the right places, but it's a little dated. You know, they're, they're kind of coming from an older school perspective. I think they're coming to terms that GitHub might still be around next year. And <laughs> I, I, ha- I have been hearing word that they are, they are trying to modernize, at least. You know, and, and this is all good. Like, I learned a ton working with the Apache board on, you know, their views and how things, like, this is, you know, an organization that could very rightfully be pointed at as, as helping create the internet and definitely keep it around. Back in the day, there was a moment where IIS could have been what we run all of our websites on, and it'd be a very different world today if that were the case. So it's, a, it's an important organization, and their learnings are important, and their, their issues and concerns are important. And it's still, it's still going today. They, they have tons and tons of projects that are hugely important to the world that, that we don't really see or, or recognize that often. Things like Cordova, the web server, Hadoop, the list goes on and on. So you're going to have, like anything, when you get a lot of people in the room, everybody's got to have an opinion. And everybody's going to think they're right and everybody else is wrong. And there's conflict. I think my biggest challenge with moving to Apache was the, the cadence slowed down. And we used to have a lot of competitors. And the only thing that you can really compete on in anything is speed. And so if you're not shipping, you're, you're dying. Node knows this well with the I.O. fork. This is, this is a key importance to the health of a project, but also growth. Every release leads to more adoption. And so we couldn't afford to chill out and have a 48-hour voting period before we could ship a binary. That was crazy for us. You know, if we had a bug, we had to ship. That was all there was to it. We, we eventually figured out ways to streamline and work quicker, but it, it definitely was a struggle. So you're not with Adobe anymore. You've moved on from there. Is that, is that a strike against Adobe, or are you just ready for a new challenge? No, yeah, man, I was done. It, it was good. I stayed for four years, a year after whatever retention period of our acquisition. I was very happy at Adobe, and I could see myself working there again. I love that team. Adobe is a company that's really great to its employees. I, I saw stuff happening out there that reminded me a lot of mobile in 2007, and I was hungry. I mean, you know, it gets very comfortable at a big company, and I was totally in an awesome dream job and I was chilling and I wanted to get back in the fight. I, I like what we do and I like being at the bleeding edge and 
honestly, mobile is table stakes now. It's it's no longer the bleeding edge. This is this is what you do at the beginning of a project, and the new stuff is is where I like to be. So yeah, I I bailed, but it was on good terms, and I'm still very close to that whole team, for sure. That's good to hear. And so to bring Node into this story, I, from what I understand, you were pivotal in bringing NPM into PhoneGap. Is that the way it goes? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah, I was really lucky. I, I happened to be traveling in Europe when the first JSConf EU happened, and I half crashed it, half invited myself into the B-track. Uh, Malta let me do it. Malta and Jan and Holger. And I, they were like, go, they, they, at that time, I can't remember the name. It was Narwhal. Narwhal was like the big JavaScript runtime for the server, but it was you know kind of based on the rhino jvm thing and it was slow and everybody was sort of whispering about this node thing and ryan Dahl was here ryan Dahl is going to do this thing and i got to see the first the first presentation and i realized as soon as he started it that we were dealing with a whole new beast this thing was fast it was faster than anything before it and it was experimenting with various module systems at that time there was no NPM at that time. There was just, you know, kind of a common JS requirey thing. Yeah, I fell in love. And so we were tracking it very closely for a very long time. And it became obvious to me that the front end was moving towards NPM. And so for our primary distribution of channel of PhoneGap, we knew we had to be there. We were, that before that, we were like, kind of like plugins for the various terrible IDEs that the mobile platforms push on you. And so you'd have to install like, an Eclipse thing to deal with Android. You'd have to install an Xcode thing to do like Xcode projects, and you had to you had to merge your stuff. So we wanted to create this idea of a unified project and put the web stuff up front. And, and moving to npm was a big key to doing that. We're still still working on making that good. I think everybody is in the industry in general, but that was that was critical for us. And then we started to move all of our tooling into JavaScript too. There's a lot of stuff that happens to do a, a mobile app, a lot of configuration files and stuff moving around. And, and we were doing that with every manner of scripting language you can imagine. I, I think we literally went through all of them, maybe except for Perl. Definitely Python, because I wrote some of that. There was Ruby in there. There was Bash. And we were able to strip all of it for JavaScript over time. And it's just a lot better off for it. It's the right ecosystem. and. I think Isaac and Node mostly solve dependency hell, which is a huge achievement. It doesn't go, doesn't get enough props. It's it's a whole different environment than working in anything else. That's for sure. Although we're still running Bash in our NP in our package JSON files. Yeah, you know that's all right. <laughs> I think Bash is going to stick around. I I like Bash though. I I maybe I I just like freaky weird languages. Like I'm cool with JavaScript too. I don't think it's that ugly. No, I'm a bit of a bash <laughs> nerd as well. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I just find it ironic that we we give up our bash scripts and start putting them back into into Node. Well, now now that we've got an Ubuntu-ish subshell on Windows, you now maybe we can go back to just writing bash. I don't know. <laughs> It'll be fun. Okay, so we might just have a break there and hear about our first sponsor. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. 
Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds, or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. Scale your infrastructure using advanced features like floating IPs for high availability, private networking, and API access for automated deployments. DigitalOcean is the fastest growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers, and Laser focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Visit DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code NOTEUP on the billing page for a $10 credit to get started today. So let's talk about let's talk about what's going on right now. What's hot, what you're doing, what people should pay attention to. You've started a, a new startup. Is it Small Wins? Is that what it's called? Yeah, we, we called ourselves Small Wins. I'm a big fan of small teams. I believe deeply in incrementalism. I like small modules that are focused. There was a whole bunch of reasons why we called ourselves that. Primary reason is that we, we didn't have a domain name yet. We didn't know what it was going to be, and we needed to incorporate. And so Small Wins is our company name, but now we're effectively calling ourselves Begin because we got begin.com. That's what I'm working on now. Was that an expensive domain name? It. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right way to like make an analogy about value, and I don't know. I don't know if I can. I, we <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, we. Yeah, we're we're really happy. We wanted to get an actionable verb that wasn't encumbered with trademark issues or software patents that had the social media accounts available, and there was just this huge amount of crazy requirements. And we we found it and. I feel for what we paid. Yeah, we got a good deal. So, and we making now, a, a company uh, these days is is tough because of all that. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, it depends on what your what space you're targeting and what you want to do. We're trying to build a, a consumer productivity product, and that's something that needs to be rememberable. And you've got a pretty great team working with you. Who have you got? Yeah, my co-founder is Ryan Block, who is known for doing Engadget before working with. Two amazing software developers, Christopher Joseph, who goes by Dam, seriously one of the best front-end developers I've ever encountered in my career, and Angelina Fabro, who's also an amazing developer, and iOS dev. And then our design side is Amber Casa, who came from Ift. So it's a, it's a hell of a team. I, I know a bit about Christopher Joseph's work, just from some contact I've had with him. And he's one of these individuals that's it's really not very well known, but has but he's got some really high quality work and has contributed a lot to his field. Yeah, he's a monster. He and I worked together at Adobe on a project called Topcoat that was trying to uncover if we could write CSS that's sane, fast, modular, and it kind of pioneered a whole bunch of thinking around the idea of benchmarking your CSS and writing CSS as modules. And we we experimented with CSS as JavaScript, which is you know, totally unholy to people, but now is probably considered a fairly common and practical approach. Yeah, he's he's great. Keep an eye on his space because he's going to be dropping a lot of interesting code in the next few months for sure. So his Twitter and GitHub handle is Dam D A M. I think he's yeah, the same it, on both, isn't he? Yeah. So I, follow, I don't follow know him. About GitHub, but I know that's his Twitter for sure. I think GitHub he might go by his full name, which is Christopher Joseph. I'll, I'll drop it in the links. Cool. So how much can you tell us about what you're doing there? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you a fair bit. So I'll rewind a little and tell you why, because I think that part's important. The whole mobile thing was obviously important to what I was doing and mattered a lot to my focus and what I was working on. And as I saw 
the apps and app stores flatlining, the, the, there was a lot more questions, right? And now I'm not concerned about the future for building apps. It's obviously going to continue to happen and it's still a big deal. But you know, what, what were people doing with their time? Why aren't they downloading stuff? You know, it's the next question. And the answer is fairly known now that most people spend their time in messaging applications. And the question that comes after that is like, what are they doing in there and why are they doing it? And where are they going? And you can see this happening in the consumer space, you know, with applications for teens like Kick and Snapchat. And you can see this in the enterprise space with things like Slack and HipChat. And these platforms possess the most amount of usage time, more than the browser often, the longest engagement times, and they're opening up to developers. Bots are going to be a thing if they aren't already, and you know we've seen both Facebook and Microsoft kind of run out and try and jump into this sphere. There's sort of a parallel universe happening, not just the messaging platforms, but we're also seeing the operating system evolve a, a voice capability. And so in iOS, you've got Siri, and Android, you've got you know, they call it Google Now right now, but it's going to be Google Assistant very soon. In Microsoft land, they've got Cortana. And in Amazon land, they've got Alexa. Voice as the operating system is also very similar to messaging. All these things effectively take a payload of text and possibly return you a meaningful reply. And everybody's conflated this whole thing into conversational UI and long-form generalized artificial intelligence. Machine learning, recurrent neural networks, this is all bullshit. It's great. Maybe we'll do all those things. I don't know. But what we're really talking about here is a, a, a shift of where people's attention are and their ability to do things very quickly with, with minimal interface, maybe no interface at all. And that's a big deal. Programmers know this stuff. We've been doing this for a really long time. We are used to having a chatbot kick off a build or notify us when something's done and acting on our behalf. So I saw that happening. And I kind of think there's a big rewrite about to happen. And I, I don't know exactly where it's going to take place, but I do know that it's, it is taking place. And so we, we wanted to pick a fight. We know that there's a lot of enterprise productivity software that is built to the last paradigm, which was mobile, or even the paradigm before that, which was desktop. None of them are thinking about this future that's conversational. And that's where we're starting with our product. Well, okay, so that's, if it's not, if bots are not about necessarily about AI and intelligence, do you define bots as simply conversational UI? Is that what bots mean to you? Yeah, or an autonomous actor that does stuff on your behalf, something that is invoked maybe directly, but, but more often perhaps indirectly through an event or something happening. Yeah, I, I think it can be a lot simpler than saying it's like long-form, stateful conversations. I think it can manifest that way and sometimes does, but I think those types of interactions were really well explored in telephone high VR systems, and it turns out those just make people ragey. And no one wants to have a long-form conversation saying yes, no, or press, you know, pound to continue. That's, that's, not a, that's not a great user experience. But being able to say, hey, bot, kick off a build, you know, that's pretty sweet. That's a lot easier than, you know, hunting around in a calendar and pressing a button. So are you trying to position yourselves as sort of the in the foundational area of this new area, or are you actually reaching out to the consumer with products that build on these kinds of technologies? 
Yeah, we, we are exploring the whole thing. So we, we are primarily interested in chat and bot interfaces, but we want to see those manifest in the web and in our own native app that may or may not be embedding web views. We want to build it so well that you can't tell the difference. And we think it's just a different way of interaction. So, and my, my best example would be calendars. So like right now, calendaring, you know, in any case is a lot of UI and it's a lot of hunting. And there's a lot of uh, visual entropy. Whereas if I say, you know, book me a flight sometime between, you know, the last two weeks of August, I can give you some really fast answers and that's not hard. That's very easy natural language processing. So this is the type of thing that we're exploring. How much UI can we can we forego and how much can we change with conversational user interface? We're still building this traditional stuff. And this kind of bleeds into actually the other part that has got me really excited in the last year, and that's the whole serverless thing. We you know, we did the the first principles thought experiment. If you're building something, you know, you're probably building it for like two years from now, you're not building it for like right now. And if you're building something two years from now, it's a pretty safe bet that you think you're going to be building something on the cloud. I don't think anyone's going to be debating that idea. You're not going to be racking your own servers to ship an app. If you're going to be building on the cloud, then you're probably looking like, well, what, what does the cloud look like a couple of years from now? And do you think that the cloud metaphor of physical hardware servers themselves makes sense anymore? And I don't think it does. We now are communicating in the terms of a single function. And you see this with AWS Lambda, but Google Cloud Functions is in beta and Microsoft Azure Cloud Functions is out there and then there's other things like WebTask or Zite. These small, tiny units of compute have become the new metaphor for how we how we pay for our software when we deploy it. And it can change how we architect our software too. And I this paradigm fits really well with bots. Everyone thinks about bots, and they're, they're sort of thinking, oh, bots are kind of like apps. But bots don't run on your client. They're not actually a client. Bots are webhooks, and they're just kind of freaky web servers. But the weird part is, is that web servers are now kind of free because we have this whole serverless thing. And so we've been experimenting a lot with AWS Lambda and API Gateway to build these evented systems. Okay, so I hear, I hear a lot of... <laughs> like complaining about the the idea of serverless and how you know you're not really serverless. There's still a server there, and it's all it's all very new as well. So there's a lot of it's I a terrible name. Like I I hate the name. It encapsulates basically to me anyways. Lambda and Google Cloud Functions and Azure. So it's uh, functions as a service. Yeah, actually, there's other there's other ones that are out there too. Zite and ToniCDev.io are fully worth everybody's time exploring. Effectively, these things are containers. Yeah, they're still servers, but you're not managing servers. I think it's hard to really appreciate how nice this is if uh, you haven't you know, lost your knuckles on a rack trying to hold a server in place. When we moved to the server metaphor in the cloud, it really wasn't all that much better because you're still configuring servers and SSHing into them. App get installing garbage all over the place or worse, you know, dealing with Chef. So... Some people have been calling this no-ops. I, I feel like this might be a really advanced form of trolling to call <laughs> serverless no-ops. <laughs> There's still ops involved. You're still locking things. You're still looking through files. Is, like, is that an aspirational name, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Here's what I know. It takes me seven seconds to deploy a Lambda endpoint on a bad day. 
my deployments before that would take minutes, maybe longer, if they were rolling updates across many servers. So this whole thing isn't isn't about saving money on you know resources or saving time on maintenance. This whole thing is about speed to market and the agility that you get out of being able to deploy these things is crazy fast. We are iterating on our API right now and our deployment time again seven seconds and apparently it scales infinitely after that. That's kind of unheard of in our industry. This is an unfair advantage and this is the type of thing that shakes up bigger incumbents. I, so I, I, our team at NodeSource is doing some work with actually Lambda in, in, in particular. I hear a lot of complaining about some of the immaturity of the tooling around it, particularly the whole API gateway thing. Um, oh God, it's bad. Yeah, for sure. So what has to improve in this area? What, what, are we, what are we expecting to get better before this is really something we can all just jump on? Because it does seem like it's a little bit too new for a, a mass movement right now. Yeah, I don't disagree. I I think there's a lot of questions to ask for, you know, the CIO type role, what they, they want to get into. If you're a larger company and you've invested in some cloud infrastructure somewhere, you probably want to stay on the happy path. If you're a startup, you know, you can take more risks. You can use things that are doing, like API Gateway was released in November, and we started building our company on top of it in December. Uh, you can do that if you're a startup. You probably can't do that if you're, you know, a larger or enterprise organization. It's rough around the edges and it's interesting because the thing that makes it rough is it tries to become a, effectively a online editor for REST. And this could open up a can of worms and hate mail, but REST is really complicated and you have to define a lot of stuff to get a lot of things happening. Uh, and this isn't good or bad, this is just how it is, but like you know, every potential error code is you know, a mapping. And each of those mappings has to be figured out individually. We cheap. We do something a lot closer to RPC for our our stuff. So a call to our API will always return 200, which you know is now causing people to gasp with horror. This is not that uncommon. We treat our errors as a different type of JSON payload, and you know we don't model REST perfectly. And we did that kind of as a forcing function. It was easier to build things on top of API Gateway by making those trade-offs. And it also made us kind of question whether a lot of that RESTy stuff was, was good. The difference between a client written in a traditional RESTy way and a client written perhaps in a more RPC way is pretty startling. Don't take my word for it. You can look at the Slack API as a very good example of a modern API written that does this exact approach that I'm talking about. And so so uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't think you've had to make compromises because of the immaturity of the product, of the API gateway, et cetera? You actually think this is a positive thing? Yeah, it it's interesting. So it I don't know if it's bad trade-offs or good trade-offs. Like I, I would have liked to have modeled this as a traditional REST application, but time didn't really afford us that. And we kind of gave ourselves permission to think differently after building our own Slack client. The Slack's API is very interesting. It's It's modeled well outside of what the norms of best practices would be considered. And I resisted it but very much on a bias that I thought, you know, the traditional REST thing was good. We wrote our own Slack client, and it was trivially easy to do because of the way that they had architected. When you make some of these choices, you end up being able to create a really thin wrapper and delegate a lot of the error handling and stuff to just the structure of the returns 
instead of you know hunting through headers or status codes to create your particular payloads that result from whatever call that you made, you're basically looking at one place for the information. So your marshalling is really small. And so the, the thing that does the network calls is really small. And it turns out to be a lot better code. And I, I know that everybody that's listening to this is thinking, this is wrong, rest is right, you should do it this way. Abandon your bias for a moment and go read some of the code that you see out there around the Slack API. And I think you might be surprised. Perhaps a lot of what we're doing is cargo faulting. <laughs> nice. I like that. Something from small wins that I've noticed is you've been churning out a lot of open source since early on. And one of your primary things has been your Slack API client for, for Node. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing with open source there and how that impacts on your business model? Yeah. Well, so, you know, I'm an open source guy. That's my that's my jam. And anything that's commodity code, I'm not interested in keeping locked up because then it's a liability. Anything that we've got out there that we could build community around that, that becomes an asset. Uh, Slack at the time, when we started writing our client, only had one client. It didn't have uh, error handling. It was written in CoffeeScript. Worse still, it was not transpiled. <laughs> so they were shipping CoffeeScript inside the NPM registry. We, we just couldn't use it. So we needed to write our own, and we did. They later ended up doing their their own thing which they're maintaining is a little bit of a different flavor. They've gone very object-oriented. We're kind of more functional. I only have one minor regret with our Slack client, and that's I wrote it in ES6. I probably wouldn't do that now, which is funny. Now that ES6 is getting a lot more mature, but one of our early goals was to run client server. I really wanted to play a lot with ES6, and so it was a good example, like a good opportunity for us to do that, and so we transpiled, ran into a ton of stuff that I, I just don't love. Not that any of this is bad or that ES6 itself is bad, but I wouldn't have made the same choices now. And in fact, our all of our Lambda code is, is ES5 from those learnings. You kind of don't want to put a transpile between yourself and your containers. Debugging gets a little uglier. So what, what else are you working on there? You've got some new open source things in your, in your GitHub. I see there's something about um, bugs. You've got a bug thing in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... So the thing that we're interested in is productivity in the post-slack world. And, you know, that, that definitely comes into contact with issue tracking. When we were working, we were using GitHub extensively. So we built a thing called BugBot. It was one of our first plays around with Slack as a primary work environment. We're, we're proud of it. Uh, begin, if, if, if anything, is a, an evolution of BugBot, a really far evolution of it. Yeah, BugBot was like our first sort of like little play with it. Now, out of that fell the Slack library. And then more recently, we've created libraries for, for working with Lambda. One called SmallWinds Lambda, the other one's called SmallWinds Validate because we wanted our own sort of JSON payload validation thing. And we're just continuing to build stuff and open source things. When we, when we actually ship our product, we'll try and make sure that most of it is open source too a little more interested in the API side of things than building clients per se. And so how much of how much of your business is going to be about Slack and how much of it is going to be just about um, We're not bots still, in general? Yeah, so we've, we've also built for SMS, email, and Facebook Messenger. We're looking at Kick. This is the interesting thing about building bots. So when you're building a bot, there's a ton of logic that is not shared. Identity and auth are different for every bot platform. 
and message payloads are different for every platform that you can communicate with. But all of them do the same thing on ingestion. That's they they all you know take text effectively or send text. So we were able to normalize most of most of our infrastructure and porting between these platforms is not too bad. We're not totally sure which ones matter yet, but we definitely really like the Slack platform in particular. I think that team gets platforms. You know, if you know their history, these guys worked on Flickr before, which was a pioneer in the idea of web APIs way back in like 2006, I guess, a long time ago. It shows in their work today. I trust them as a vendor, and I, I kind of love how they build out their APIs and working with their platform is, is fun if you're a developer. I think Telegram's kind of channeling some of that too. Have you played at all with the any of the voice APIs yet? So I know they're all opening up. You've got the Apple, Google, Amazon. Yeah, Horizon. we're just yeah we're just starting to dabble our toes in there. SiriKit just came out from Apple. They're very they're very locked down in what they want to do with that. The Cortana stuff is also open. I think that, that we're sort of on this edge of the next operating system, which will be like more Star Trekky, more voice. And, and by edge, I mean, like, who knows, maybe five, ten years. But we're, we're starting to get there. And all of them are interestingly invasive <laughs> and yet totally comfortable at the same time. So, you know, you've got a context that's listening to you, which is pretty weird, and possibly knows a whole bunch of stuff about you and can, can do actions on your behalf. And this is, this is a whole, a, effectively a whole brand new way of compute. We're we're super interested in that. We think like the messaging thing is kind of the precursor to the voice operating system thing, and and the funnest part about all of this that's relevant to our podcast here is that most of it's JavaScript, and most all of it is JavaScript in in how we're building for these platforms. So in ten years' time, we're all going to be yelling at our computers. Yeah, as if we weren't already. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to. It's sort of more high level and maybe philosophical things. Just trying to add some value for our listeners who are trying to level up their Node. You've been hanging around JavaScript for a long time. You've been doing Node. You've been, you've watched its evolution. What are some of the, the the key things that you can share for people about that 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 are trying to improve their Node skills? That are trying to understand this beast better and this community and the ecosystem that they exist in. Yeah, it's a loaded question because I think you know it's it's grown to be such a diverse community that there's a wealth of opinions and you know everybody thinks they're right and at the exclusion of everybody else and it's probably not true. We're all figuring it out as we go. Node's done a ton for making front end dev better in so many ways from a tooling perspective. I don't know that the inverse has been true completely <laughs> and so we see a lot of practices coming from front-end dev that are attempting to force their way into uh, the learnings of building you know evented applications on the server that don't always fit really well I think right now especially in front-end dev we're just seeing this this huge movement to almost enthusiastically adopt whatever looks shiny and that's that's really not productive there's when lot. when has that not been the case with the web though, with the web? Yeah, I don't know. Well, I think, and maybe this is just like being an old man, but like like a lot of this is just not practical. We're 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 setting up like huge build steps and tons of infrastructure, and we're adding you know 
transpiles beyond any type of specification. So we're effectively writing some pseudo language that's not JavaScript, some other language. And I think a lot of this is dangerous. So we're, we're pulling back big time. We're just seeing too much thrash. And there's a lot to be said for being pragmatic and you know building stuff that you know that can work and holding back a little and sort of watching how things unfold. There's a tendency to, you know, like, uh, especially in the syntax stuff, like people, you know, I read the other day someone saying that the, you know, the new, you know, module spec is a huge performance enhancer. Like it makes you like way more productive. And I wholeheartedly disagree. I think that's just completely batshit crazy. There's no way that a module system is making you more productive as it can import or export, you know, more tersely. This is this is crazy. We have a working module system that's, you know, in production, it's been running for something like seven years, really successfully in scaled clearly. We don't need these new things. Should you experiment with them? Yes. Do you want to work with other languages like CopyScript or TypeScript? Absolutely. Do that. That's great learn from those things. There's no silver bullet that's going to emerge out of this. You still have to do the work. You'll still have to you know, follow whatever traditional software practices that you think are right for your project. It's not a thing that you have to stay on this treadmill to, to win. Okay, so this is another loaded question, but do you, do, you, do you feel that we're heading to, into a bit of a cultural divide here between you know, the, the old guard, the pragmatic guard, and the the people that are, are keen to embrace the new and then, you know, basically adopt all of these new things as they come out. You know, is there a risk there for us in being divided? I don't think so. And I think it's good that, we, you know, there's a, you know, a lot of people playing with new stuff and shipping it. And I think that's, that's great. There's been huge strides made in the last couple of years. It's, well, this is bad. It's mostly additive and the, you know, the bad tends to flake off the sides over time when it, when it, rises up and people get excited and I remember when generators were brand new and everybody was like sweet we're going to rewrite everything in generators and then we tried to run it on a phone and none of it worked and we're like cool we can't do that right now <laughs> maybe we can now I don't know I actually haven't gone back and tried them and there's you know it's okay to be testing and trying out new things it's also okay to be you know shipping tried and true things I don't think we have to characterize them as polar opposites. I, I get upset though, and, and you know, you've seen this and other people have, when, when I go online and I read like, there's a, you know, a new paradigm shift and everything is great and just write your code in this way, some absolute statement. Like for example, async await. Everyone's like, you gotta write your code with async await, it's so much better. I, I don't have to write my code with async await. In fact, I don't want to because it transpiles to a gigantic while true loop with a switch statement, which is effectively a big memory eating state machine. That's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do that on the client. I'm not even going to do it on a server I'm running for like less than three seconds in a Lambda instance. It's nuts. When that thing ships natively, I'll totally check it out. Right now, I think it's an immature, bad idea to use code like that. So, yeah, so you I, think that most, I'm most of these things should, will... I'm saying I wouldn't bet my business on it. And if I wouldn't do it, you probably should second guess if you would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I, I'm coming from it from the, like, a, in Node Core, we have this challenge of we're dealing with a platform that is, it's not brand new, it's not shiny. 
and we're being presented with all these shiny new things and people want it to be that shiny. So we have a, a challenge to walk down the middle there somewhere and present a, a mature platform, but also I, a platform I, I am so impressed with Chris Dickinson and Bradley and how how Node as a organization has been meeting these challenges. It, you guys have done this with class and patience that I wouldn't have. I think it's I think it's great. You know, it's these these are tough conversations. It's going to take a while. The thing that that I really respect about Node is that there's a, a a good amount of respect for in in the node technical steering committees to not break shit. I think the new shiny always it's like, well, we got to move to the future luddites and we're going to break you on the path. And that is just the worst community governance ever and node doesn't do that, which I really appreciate cuz if you forced me to upgrade to promises, I'd be really mad. <laughs> <laughs> we'll maintain a special version just for you then that doesn't <laughs> yeah well you don't have to i you know i'm sure they'll i'm sure they will land when they are ready you know to be used people will onboard them you know when that time comes it appears that we have to keep throwing new syntax at at that particular construct to make them usable so i absolutely am confident that we will see them in production in 2024 or later <laughs> they'll be cancelable by then um <laughs> So, yeah. Okay. I mean, that's that's great. This, like, I appreciate that pragmatism, and I think that comes with maturity as as a developer. And I think one of the takeaways there for people is is to try and lean into pragmatism when you see opportunities to, rather than jumping from one hot thing to the next. And I see the same thing with technology everywhere. Like Docker was the same. Yeah. And it, it, these things have to shake out and become part of our stack, and we have to figure out the right place for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think anything is, is inherently good or bad, you know, but syntax or, or, you know, actual things beyond the constructs. This is one thing that gets a little annoying to me, though, is that we, we spend a lot of time talking about the constructs instead of talking about like, the actual artifacts we're building. So, like, how we build things is kind of boring, you know. Like, if I have to do something, you know, in series, I, I use async series. If I have to do something in parallel, I use async parallel or there's other libraries that like pull those two concepts out. I didn't need like, you know, syntax or constructs to do those things. It's nice to have them when they come along, but it didn't change that, you know, the challenge of writing concurrent code or or parallel code. And that's what we should be focusing on, not so much like the the aesthetics of things, like how it works instead of how it looks. And that that may be where I get the most annoyed. Like I really think it matters too much what the syntax is or how it looks like like how does this work and like is that appropriate for that particular problem and and how we want to solve it is it performant is it have symmetry with the underlying runtime like how does this thing shake out when it hits v8 you know is it going to be a good story for me or am i optimizing for my my developer happiness of the week whatever that is those are the the questions i i kind of wish we were asking uh, a little more often so what about for let's say We've got young developers, new new developers listening to this. What what sort of areas should they be focusing their their skills development on to prepare for the future and to position themselves well to take advantage of what's coming over the horizon? What like let's just do a bit of futurism here, and do you have any advice on that front? Well, so I'm 100% certain that the metaphor for building backend applications isn't going to be a server; it's going to be a function. We're probably rapidly entering that that era right now and so investing in you know your 
your particular take on whatever our cloud function is, I think is important as a young developer. You know, Amazon, Azure, and Google, Tonic Dev, Webtask, maybe Iron.io. These these things are that that's the future. So it's not going to be, you know, kicking up a big monolithic stack, starting up a Postgres server, and then scaling these things horizontally behind, you know, a load balancer. That that those days are gone. So I would would strongly recommend learn about the cloud and figure out which one you think is interesting and build on that. Mobile so you're argue, arguing against full stack there? No, I think that's fine. Like, you know, build for the client and build for the server and, and, and yeah, learn about databases. Like, I I think it's, we've, we've gone through this, this weird vacillation of moving between client and server for so many years where, you know, like I remember early in my career, there was no client. You sent HTML down the pipe, you know, through a CGI script or whatever and you hoped it rendered into something comprehensible on the other side. Later, we started building like really rich client applications, and then Rails came out, and we got really excited about writing you know, RESTful web APIs and services, and then mobile happened, and we got really excited about building iOS apps on the client, and you know, now serverless is happening on bots, and we're starting to swing back to the server, except for there is no server. It's these serverless apps. But it's always this vacillation between the front and the back end, and I don't think that developers have to limit themselves I would I would also recommend that developers start learning about design. I think we're in a, a new world where there's an expectation of great user experiences, and even if you aren't going to be the designer, you should learn the language and understand the motivations and respect user experience is probably the driver for, for really great products, which people use, which ultimately you want, want to be a part of if you're writing code. Do you have any favorite books or authors or speakers that you think people should check out? Oh. Sorry. Put you on the spot there. Damn, that's a big question. I would troll the JSConf, NodeConf, YouTube channels. Those are good places to get started. I think that whatever local community things have fallen out of those organizations are also worth checking out. In San Francisco, it's WaffleJS. In you know, on the East Coast, it's Brooklyn JS. Or I don't really know what the analogs are in Europe or elsewhere. But those those sort of smaller community meetups are totally where it's at. And that's, I think, good. Like, yeah, connect with your community, definitely. And everybody's here to help. So a lot of people are starting to move to different slacks, and that might be also worth exploring for the younger developers. Well, I, I couldn't tell you where the cool node slack is. I imagine there must be one. Yeah, I, I don't think I've been invited to that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Well, that's great. I, I think there's a lot of value in that. Uh, we might wrap it up now if... We've, we're getting close to an hour, so yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for sharing with us. Let's finish out with some plugs. Do you have any any plugs or things you'd like to tell people about that we haven't already covered on the show? Yeah, so I was I was trying to think of something that was like cool and interesting that could like you know add value to people's lives that you know really impacted mine. And so I'm sure many of the in the audience are fans of Game of Thrones, which is you know. This TV series that spawned out of a, an excellent series of books. Game of Thrones is really great, you know, epic, but kind of like grimy, dark fantasy. And there's there's one set of authors that are better. And so if you're into Game of Thrones and you're into that, I recommend checking out Malazan. And I'll I'll spell it out in the in the links, but it's 
it's by two Canadian authors, and it's better than Game of Thrones, which is a bold claim to make, I understand. But if, if you're looking to go like beyond, you should check out Malazan. Is that, is that fantasy, or is that historical? Yeah, What's the yeah it's epic, dark fantasy, kind of like military fantasy. Cool. Anything <laughs> else? Nah, that'll do. Yeah, I okay. think we, talk, we talked about everything else. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so I, I've got a few. I wanted to give a shout-out to audiobooks. I, I, so I've had trouble recently in the last few years of being able to find time to read. And since really discovering audiobooks, I've, I go through books at such an amazing rate these days. Largely, I'm doing fiction. and I've never been much of a fiction reader, but plowing through fiction these days. So I want to recommend people try out audiobooks if you find yourself strapped for time. Um, there's actually plenty of good stuff out there, and I'm I'm going through genres that I, you know, would never have touched before. Like I'm currently into a bit of zombie fiction. No way, Brad. One of my one of my favourites is actually Canadian. There's this uh, series called Mountain Man. It's about this. It's set in Canada. It, it's great, character driven. It's funny. It's great. Uh, I also want to plug the end of Node version five. If you're listening to this, then Node version five has well and truly ended. Oh, no more support for Node five. <laughs> <laughs> so you need to get off that and to either get onto node version 6 or go back to node version 4 which is LTS for another couple of years so just be aware of those odd versions of node also the node source Linux distributions I want to plug our support for different Linux distributions is expanding There's the scripts for setup are improving documentation's improving I, th- I think we're all really proud of the work that we've been able to put into making those distributions really solid so go and check out that i'll put a link in the show notes so upcoming events we have os and fields conference which is in seattle in july the 22nd 23rd you can find out more information at osfields.com one word cascadia fest is on and that's in i i can't pronounce that name it's in washington state cascadiajs.com jsconf iceland jsconf.is is August 25th to 26th. And Node Interactive EU is September 15th to 16th in Amsterdam. The CFP has closed and the speakers are now listed on the website for that. Node Interactive North America is in Austin November the 29th to 30th. I think it actually goes into December as well, but that's I think the CFP might still be open, but we haven't heard speaker selection for that yet, so that may still be open for putting in talk proposals. That's all we have on there. I want to thank Brian LaRue for joining us on this first very special one-on-one note-up. It's been really great, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you have more, if you have recommendations for people you'd like to hear from in a one-on-one series, it won't necessarily just be me interviewing people, then pop over to the GitHub note, uh, note-up on GitHub, the repo is called Contribute, and there's an issue in there asking for suggestions. Drop a name, and we'll see if we can follow it up. Any anyone you want to hear about that, will, that you think will help enhance your node abilities and your node your node foo. So follow Node Up on Twitter. You can sponsor Node Up by emailing nodeup at gmail.com. Thanks very much for joining us, and goodbye from me, and goodbye from Brian. Bye. <laughs>